I feel like we've already had uh, a sermon or two this morning, uh, but since I've, t- I've taken so much time to study, I'm going to go ahead and give you a third one. Um, so let's go ahead and ask the Lord to, to guide our time in his word today. <clears throat> Gracious Father, thank you for reminding us this morning that our hope is found in you. That these things that come into our lives, like that parasite, that unwanted guest, that if we had our own choice would not choose this, but you bring it into our life because you have a purpose, a good purpose for us to create something in us and through us that we could not produce without that trial. Lord, the hope that we've been singing about that is found in none other than Jesus Christ alone because he came and gave himself on our behalf. And the grip of sin upon our life has been removed. We've been set free. Lord, for these things we give you thanks. We ask that you would today give us a better understanding of the book of Leviticus, the importance of this book, and how it lays a foundation for what Christ accomplished on our behalf. And so we ask that you would guide our time in your word. Use it to bring glory and honor to your name and help us as we appropriate the truths into our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our, our expedition has taken us through Genesis and through Exodus. And so uh, Genesis, if you would put that up there, Tim, uh, just to remind you where we've been, uh, Genesis can be divided into those two sections. We've got in the first 11 chapters four key events, creation, the fall, the flood, and the nations that were divided. Uh, the, the languages were confused at the Tower of Babel and nations began. And then in the second section, we have four key individuals. And uh, we can follow the progression from chapter 12 to chapter 50 by following these four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the book of Genesis ends when, the, when uh, Joseph brings his father Jacob and his, his brothers and their family, 70 in all, down from the land of Canaan into Egypt, and he gives them the land of Goshen to spare them from the famine. And then the book of Exodus begins at that spot. If you'll flip the slide. Uh, The book of Exodus begins with those 70 individuals, and then when they leave Egypt, there's over 2 million. 430 years from the time they came to the time they walked out of Egypt uh, and and through the Red Sea. But in that first section, which is the, the the redemption of Israel, where, where God is bringing them out from slavery in Egypt. And he did so through the ten plagues uh, that, they, that, that, that God poured out upon Egypt. 
in that time. And then we have uh, the, the um, again, the deliverance from bondage. And, and that first section, the first 18 chapters, is really more historical, whereas the last section is more instructional. Uh, very little time went past in that, in that time frame, that revelation to Israel, where we see God's directions given to them in worship through the Ten Commandments that he gave Moses, who then shared that with the people. Not only did he give them the Ten Commandments, but he gave them instructions on the tabernacle. And so then they gathered a contribution. As we said last week, they had more than they needed. Moses had to say, stop giving. And then they built the tabernacle. And at the end of the book of Exodus, God's glory comes and fills the tabernacle. And so then we come to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, unlike Genesis and Exodus, only covers about one month of time in history. Because it's all instructional. There's, there's very little narrative in the book of Leviticus. And maybe this is why oftentimes people get bored or bogged down in Leviticus, because there's all these instructions given to Israel. Well, it's important that we understand the significance of the book of, uh, of Leviticus. Uh, I want to read from uh, the, the book Old Testament Survey, the message, form, and background of the Old Testament, written by William Lesore, David Hubbard, and Fred, uh, Frederick Bush. This is one of my textbooks in seminary. All right? I'm only going to read a little bit of it. But it says, Leviticus sometimes said to set forth the law, meaning ritual laws of Israel. Such a statement usually is followed by a study of the contents as a simple collection of laws with no attempt to understand the basic meaning of the Hebrew word Torah. The Hebrew usage Torah means instruction or discipline in the sense of disciplining as well as chastening. Uh, it was used for the instruction given by a mother and a father. And uh, we know as parents that we don't just tell them, we also discipline. And we use those means to help them understand the, the, the important truths, the principles. We also see that principles that are derived from scientific uh, observations can be called laws. And so in some sense, law can designate the principles that govern the law of Yahweh, uh, Yahweh's covenant people. In the Old Testament, the word law includes statutes, judgments, commandments, and precepts. Therefore, it's not erroneous to translate Torah as law. Nonetheless, it is far more helpful to look upon Leviticus as a book of instructions for the priest nation and their priestly representatives. You remember that God set apart Israel to be his priest to the rest of the world to all the other nations who were involved in pagan worship so that they would represent Yahweh, the one true God, to the rest of the world. They were the priest nation. And so these instructions were given to them as well as the Levitical, uh, the, the Levites, which was one of the 12 tribes who were set apart within the nation of Israel, and the priests came from that tribe. He says, the central theme of Leviticus might be well expressed through the words holiness or holy. There's two questions that are raised by the basic theme of holiness. The first is, how can sin be removed so people may become holy? And second, how can people maintain the holiness that is necessary for fellowship with the holy God? The first 
section of the book of Leviticus deals with the first question, and the second section deals with the second question. And so to look at the book as a whole, again, I'm, I'm going to draw from the book Talk Through the Bible, which, in, which, which is written by Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boa. Um, they say this, it's been said that it took God only one night to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. In Exodus, Israel is redeemed and established as the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In Leviticus, Israel is taught how to fulfill their priestly call. They've been led out from the land of bondage in Exodus and into the sanctuary of God in Leviticus. They move from redemption to service, from deliverance to dedication. This book serves as a handbook for the Levitical priesthood, giving instructions and regulations for worship, used to guide a newly redeemed people into worship, service, and obedience to God. And Leviticus falls into two main sections, as you see on your chart there, sacrifice and sanctification. They say this about the, the first section. This section teaches that God must be approached by the sacrificial offerings. Chapters 1 through 7 deal with that. By the mediation of the priesthood in chapters 8 through 10. By the purification of the nation from uncleanness in chapters 11 through 15. And by the provision for national cleansing and fellowship in chapters 16 and 17. The blood sacrifices remind the worshipers that because of sin, the holy God requires the costly gift of life. The blood of the innocent sacrificial animal becomes the substitute for the life of the guilty offerer. Because Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This was a lesson that Israel was, was not only taught in Leviticus, but continued to, to have before them day after day after day, generation after generation, until Christ came. The second section, sanctification. The Israelites served a holy God who requires them to be holy as well. The word holy means to be set apart or separated. They are to be separated from other nations unto God. Because God is a God who is holy. He is separated. Not only from humanity in the sense that he is uh, spirit and we are, we are flesh. He is invisible and we are visible. But he is set apart from sin from sinful humanity. And he says, we are to be holy as he is holy. Which involves the idea of moral excellence. To be separated from sinful behavior. They go on to say this, in Leviticus, uh, the idea of holiness appears 87 times. Sometimes indicating ceremonial holiness, of other times moral holiness. This sanctification extends to the people of Israel the priesthood, their worship, their life in Canaan, and their special vows. It is necessary to remove the defilement that separates the people from God so that they can have a walk of fellowship with their Redeemer. So as we look at our chart, just as some, some basic things to help us understand, we've got sacrifice, sanctification, we've got five offerings in the first section, we've got seven feasts in the second. We're going to look particularly at those five offerings here today more specifically. But those seven feasts are important. These are the things that Israel 
again, celebrated every year throughout their generations. And these feasts, again, taught them important truths that Christ fulfilled. The first four of these feasts occurred during the springtime. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. They have already been fulfilled by Christ. The final three, trumpets, the day of atonement, the tabernacles, occur in the fall, all within a 15-day period. And many biblical scholars believe that Christ in his second coming will fulfill those last three. Jesus fulfilled the Passover because he was crucified during Passover. And as we looked at last week, most likely on the very day and the very hour that the lambs were crucified or were sacrificed. The unleavened bread pointed to the Messiah's sinless life because leaven in the Bible is an, is an image of sin. And of course, Jesus was without sin, so he was the perfect sacrifice. His body was in the tomb during the first days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. While the Jews were celebrating the unleavened bread, Jesus' body was planted in the ground like a, like a grain of wheat planted in the ground that would then, once it dies in the ground, brings forth life. Jesus was planted, his body planted in the ground during the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the third, the first fruits, which pointed to the Messiah's resurrection as the first fruits of righteousness, guess when Jesus was resurrected? On the day they celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. And this is why the Apostle Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians 20 as the first fruits from the dead. And as a in the first fruits in, in uh, for, for in the nation of Israel, they would have bring the first fruits right to, to the Lord in their in their uh, offering. It was an indication that more was coming. Jesus' resurrection is an indication that more is coming. Guess what? That's your resurrection and mine through Christ. We're guaranteed that. Jesus fulfilled that. And then the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, occurred 50 days after the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and pointed to the great harvest of souls and the gift of the Holy Spirit for the, both Jews and Gentiles. Well, guess what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples. And they proclaimed the gospel on that day. And over 3,000 Jews got saved. Jesus fulfilled those four things already. It's already accomplished. God had them participate in these feasts and the, and the imagery of these feasts so that when they saw it, they would know. But they didn't. And the last three, again, uh, many believe will be fulfilled by Jesus in his second coming, which will make a lot of sense, um, certainly as we, we think about all that. But in this first section, under sacrifice, these first uh, 17 chapters, we see God showing Israel how to remove sin through the sacrificial system, through the purifications that they went through. And then the second section, how to retain fellowship with the holy God. And again, as I said, one month of time takes place during, during while they're getting all these instructions. So not very long of a period of time. Well, let's talk about the significance of the offerings. 
Now, before I, before I go into that specifically, let me share just two more paragraphs from the book, A Survey of the Old Testament, because it speaks of the relevance of the book of Leviticus to today. A lot of times, and even some theologians say, well, this doesn't have any relevance for us today. Well, here's what they say. If the love of God is relevant today, so is Leviticus. Behind its stern requirements and strict regulations stands the loving heart of Yahweh who longs for the fellowship of his people. The same grace that snatched them from slavery in Egypt sought to maintain regular communion with them. God's holiness insisted that for fellowship to be enjoyed, sin must be dealt with. And it must be dealt with on the terms that are acceptable to God. Leviticus thus is much more than a compendium of sacrifices and feasts, but it spelled out the terms of that fellowship. But the sacrifice of Christ is relevant, and also the discussion in Hebrews, and so is Leviticus. The sacrifice of Christ, as Christ himself described it prior to the event, and his apostles after the event, can be understood only in light of the Jewish sacrificial system. The epistle to the Hebrews underscores this. And so Leviticus is important. It was important for Israel because it taught them the importance of a blood sacrifice for the remission of sins and how to maintain that fellowship with God. It's important for us believers today because it lays the foundation of what Christ accomplished. If we don't have an understanding of all of this, we'd say, why do, we, why do Christians talk about blood so much? That is so gory. Why would we do that? Why can't we just talk about God's love? Why can't God just say, well, you know what? They didn't mean to do that, so I'm just going to let it go. Why can't God be like so many parents today who aren't willing to discipline disobedience, who aren't willing to teach the importance of, of uh, respect for authority, why can't God be like our society today? Everybody's welcome, no matter what they do or who they are. Everybody can do whatever they want. Whatever works for you, you be you. And then just let everyone be them. And, and it'll just all work out fine. Well, it ain't working out real fine in our culture. And it doesn't work with a holy God. God is holy and set apart from sin, and demands there be a sacrifice for sin. He laid this sacrificial system out so that the people would understand. And that's why we have to emphasize the blood of Christ. The significance of the offerings. Leviticus chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. The way Leviticus is laid out here at the beginning is uh, chapter 1. Uh, chapters 1 through 7 deal with these offerings. Each chapter deals with a different offering, and then you get to chapter 6 and 7, and they talk more about the priestly perspectives of those five offerings. But chapter 1 is all about the burnt offering, our first offering mentioned. It says this, And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, and the tent of meeting at this point now is the tabernacle. And it says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering, 
in the herd, he, sh excuse me, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that he may be accepted to him, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the bread and the sprinkle of the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And the, and the Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, and sew it over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar, its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall offer it up in smoke, all of it, on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering of fire by a soothing aroma to the Lord. Well, there's a lot that's said there. We're going to emphasize just a couple things. We'll come back to a few others in a little bit. First of all, you'll see in your outline after it says the burnt offering, we have sweet savor in parentheses. The first three offerings are all called sweet savor offerings or a soothing aroma offering to the Lord. And that's what that means. It's, it's, a, it's pleasing to the Lord. It's, a, it's, a, it's an act of worship. It's a, um, it's a voluntary act that Israel is to bring to the Lord. Many believe that these first three represent the person of Christ whereas the last two represent the work of Christ. And in these first three, these sweet savor, the blood was only sprinkled on the altar, whereas in the last two, the non-sweet savor, the blood was poured out. It was sprinkled, a little bit was sprinkled, but the rest was all poured out. And so there's an image there as well. But in the burnt offering, and we're going to look at four things, four characteristics, if you will, of each one, and we're going to, we're going to work through some of them rather quickly because I want to focus in upon the last two, Christ's fulfillment and the application. But the purpose of the burnt offerings, the best I can see and from what I've read, is to atone for unwilling sin in general. The word atone means to cover over. Uh, our English word at one meant is the idea of reconciliation, to bring together at one meant. When, when sin occurred in the garden, there was a separation between holy God and now sinful humanity. They were cast out of the garden. There was a, now a separation. What needed to happen is they had to be brought back together. At one moment, needed to happen. Reconciliation. And so what did God do? God killed an animal and covered them with the skin. The first shedding of blood it was because of sin in the garden. And the, the burnt offering is a general picture of that, is, is for the people to be uh, covered by that blood. The burnt offering, the distinction of the burnt offering, a couple things. One is the whole thing was burned out. None of the other offerings was the entire thing burned out at the altar. But this one, verse 9, says, all of it, all of it was burned up. The other thing about the burnt offering, as well as the, the, the second offering, the grain offering, was that it, they, they did it every day, morning and evening. Morning and evening. The priests were offering something, morning and evening, the burnt offering. That doesn't mean that every person brought a, a burnt offering every day, in the morning and the evening. Can you imagine? You never get anything done. 
that the priests were, there was constant. And the, the burnt offering throughout scripture is often referred to as the whole burnt offering because the entire thing was, was consumed there. It's also referred to as the continual burnt offering because it was continually offered morning and evening, morning and evening, day after day after day. So throughout the camp of Israel, there was always smoke coming up from the tabernacle, always an offering going up. Blood was continually being shed. Christ's fulfillment. Christ gave his life fully, completely dedicated to the will of the Father. He held nothing back. He gave himself completely to the Lord, to the Lord's will in his sacrifice. All of it, all of it, given on the altar as a fulfillment of the burnt offering. What is the application? Total surrender to the Lord. What is God calling us to as his people who have received his salvation through his sacrifice by faith. He's calling for us to surrender our lives to him. Total dedication and surrender to the Lord. That doesn't mean that every person who commits their life to the Lord, he's going to send overseas to, to be a missionary somewhere. Or that he's going to call every person to be in full-time Christian vocation. But he calls every one of us just as he did for the nation of Israel to be set apart for him. I belong to you now, Lord, because you paid the price for me. I'm yours. For some people, this realization comes at the same time when they come to know Christ. For many, it's that realization that comes a little later in their journey, particularly for those who maybe grew up in the church and and uh, heard about the need for a Savior young, and you didn't have a, 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 maybe even the capacity to understand all this, or maybe it wasn't taught, but you, you came to understand you had a need for a Savior, and you put your faith in Christ, but it was sometime later in your journey of growing up and understanding the Scriptures, you came to the place of realizing, God calls me to give my life for Him, to Him, that I, I belong to Him now. I'm a steward. My life is a stewardship. And all that I have, all that I am, belong to him. We will never grow in the Lord. We will never be what God intends for us to be in this life until we come to a place and say, God, I belong to you. I give my life over to you. You have full right to tell me how to live my life, how to handle my time my talents, and my treasures. It all, it's, it's, I'm yours. That offering was a total, complete dedication to the Lord. The second was the green offering. Chapter 2 is about the green offering. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Now when anyone presents a green offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour it on the he shall pour oil and put frankincense on it. And he shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar. 
an offering by fire of soothing aroma to the Lord. And the remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. A grain offering. The purpose of a grain offering, it seems, to, is to offer a tribute. They didn't give the whole thing on the altar. They gave the whole thing to the Lord, but only a portion, a memorial portion, was burned on the altar. The rest was given to the priest. It was part of the priest's remuneration for his work to the Lord. But it was a tribute to the Lord as king. Just as when any um, nation was, was uh, under the authority of, a, of another nation's king, they were to give a tribute to the king. They were under his authority. This is a tribute to the king. It's an acknowledgement that he is the one in charge. He's the king. Later on, when the nation of Israel asked for a king, a, a physical king, and, and Samuel was upset about that, and God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. They were to do this, just as with the burnt offering, morning and evening, along with the burnt offering, and it was a continual, again, a reminder, God is the king. Again, the distinctiveness is it's the only one that wasn't a blood sacrifice. This is a, a food sacrifice. Only a memorial portion was offered, and the rest was eaten by the priest. Christ's fulfillment. Christ offered himself willingly on our behalf. Give, gave himself, right? This was a willing, voluntary act of Christ on our behalf in submission to the Father. In fact, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own initiative. He was fully and completely submissive to the will of the Father. Willingly offered himself. And what's the application? And again, just as the meal offering was, was morning and evening with the burnt offering, they were, they were oftentimes together and how they were associated. Along with the total surrender signified by the burnt offering, we ought to dedicate each day of our lives in response to God's goodness and mercy. It's the Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right? Paul, in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, is laying out for us the doctrine of salvation, the, the importance of understanding what God has done for us and what we have in Christ, the, the mercies of God. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual reasonable service of worship. And then verse 2 tells us kind of how to do that. It's not being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so it's an issue of uh, maybe even combining the two of these first two is that, I, I, yes, I surrender my life to the Lord. I'm a living sacrifice. I live my life now as an offering to God in response to what God has already done for me through Christ. This is my reasonable service of worship. This is what's reasonable for those who've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And every day, 
We get up. And we say, Lord, today would you use me? Today, show me something in your word that I can hold on to that will bring encouragement to me, that will give guidance to me, that will help me walk out my faith authentically today before others. Help me to fulfill your will. Okay, right? Ongoing, continual, day after day, because God has been so merciful. It's in light of the mercies of God. And it's through a renewing of our minds through the Word of God that a transformation happens. And so, over time, God is transforming our lives through His Word as He renews our mind and causes us to be more like Jesus. And just like the burnt offering and the green offering were continual things, we are continually coming before the Lord and dedicating ourselves to that. Third is the peace offering. The peace offering is actually, there are three peace offerings. There's the thank offering or thanksgiving offering. And we see that throughout the Psalms when as David and other psalmists would say, uh, you know, when you offer your thanksgiving offering, your sacrifices of thanksgiving, that's the one of the peace offerings. There is what's called the votive offering, and there is the free will offering. The purpose is a little different for each one. Well, the purpose of the thank offering is, of course, to express gratitude to God for his many blessings. When God would answer a prayer, when God would do something specific, then people would bring a thank offering, a way of expressing their gratitude. Um, the votive offering was to fulfill a vow. When someone made a vow, like a Nazarite vow or some other vow, and they, they would fulfill it, they would bring this offering, this um, peace offering to God in, in fulfillment of that vow that they made. And so a lot of times, again, you'll see as you read through the scriptures, uh, 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 it talks about fulfilling your vows. And this is part of that. And then the free will offering was simply to express a, a joyful heart, just a, a way of saying, God, I'm so thankful to be part of the family of God. Nothing necessarily specific, just generally speaking. The distinctiveness of this particular uh, offerings, the, the peace offerings, was that, um, again, voluntary like the other two, that it was only a very small portion was burned up. The fat portions were burned up on the altar. The rest of it was eaten. Some was given to the priest, but much of it was eaten by the people who brought it. And they would have a feast right there in the tabernacle, inviting family and friends to come and enjoy a feast, a fellowship, meal together to celebrate, either thanking God for something or, or to fulfill a vow or to, to just express, I'm so glad to be part of the family of God. Christ fulfilled this in that he is the basis of, of that peace with God and fellowship with one another. He's what brings us together. He's why we come together. Why we're part of a family, a, a local congregation. Because of Christ's sacrifice, because of who he is, adds our peace. Well, the application for us is simply that we gather together <laughs> to fellowship. That what we're doing right here, right now, is in fulfillment, if you will, of peace offering. 
We gather every Sunday morning to acknowledge God's goodness, God's grace and kindness, to give thanks to God. There may be something specific in your heart and mind that you would just thank you for what you've done and answer that prayer or how you're working here. And I just want to express my gratitude. We sing songs that remind us of what Christ did and the hope that we have in Christ. We do it together in fellowshipping around the same truth. And how much better when we can enjoy a meal with it. <laughs> what we did last Saturday was exactly in fulfillment of this. We were celebrating God's faithfulness in working through faithful people to pay off a mortgage. And we enjoy good fellowship together. And good food. And we shared. And we sang. This is, this is what this is about. Celebrating the goodness, mercy, and grace of God. When we gather for Thanksgiving, if we spend any time during that time giving thanks to God, sometimes we just see it as a day off work and a way to fill up our bellies. But it's an opportunity within our culture to, to do kind of the same thing. We have a meals at Christmas time and celebrate and we recognize the, the coming of Jesus. Um, so all these things. Well, fourthly, we come now to the sin offering. Now we come to the non-sweet savor. Those which are not voluntary but mandatory. Those that represent the work of Christ and the blood was poured out. The purpose of the sin offering, as well as the last one, which is the guilt or trespass offering, was to atone for specific unintentional sins. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, and he talks about the priests, if they do that, and, and how they offer these this sacrifice. And here's, here's the summation of, of this. The, the offering itself that went on the altar was much like the peace offering. Only the fat portions were burned on the altar in the tabernacle. The rest of it was taken outside of the camp and burned outside the camp. The other difference is the blood. A little bit of blood was sprinkled, but the rest was poured out on the ground. Many believe that was an indication of, of, again, the pouring out of Christ's blood on our behalf. So the purpose was to atone for specific un, um, unintentional sins. And that all of these, except for the grain offering, all of the blood sacrifices, all of them, the worshiper would bring the animal to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle door and they would lay their hand upon the head of the animal. And after laying their hand on the head of the animal, then they would kill the animal. The laying on of the hand was a representation of their sin being transferred to that innocent animal. It symbolized identification. 
and the transfer of sin. And that animal then was slaughtered as a substitute on behalf of the offering. That animal didn't do anything wrong. It took representatively the sin from that person and their blood was shed as a substitute. Again, the distinctiveness was that this was the requirement for forgiveness. It was the blood was poured out. The, uh, the authors of, of the book, the Survey of the Old Testament, say this, Levitical sacrifices were not designed to revolts. You think so much blood being shed. This, this is revolting, right? It was not designed to do that, but to impress upon the sacrificer a sense of identification with the victim. The author was sacrificing not only a choice animal, which he had raised, but a substitute for himself. The whole sequence of events, from the laying one of hands to the killing of it, to the taking certain portions and all of that, he performed not, uh, he, the events he, he performed could not help but impress upon him the, the penalty invoked for sin which was the cost of a life. And this is why God laid out these details, because he wanted to use all of this for a purpose, to impress upon them the importance that sin demands a blood payment for sin, because it's about death. Sin deserves death. That's the message of the Old and New Testament. Christ's fulfillment is that he gave his life as the substitutionary atonement for you and me. What 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us is this, that he, that is God the Father, made him, Christ the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The idea here is this, that God the Father placed his hand on God the Son's head and took all of our sin off of us and transferred it onto him, and he became a substitute. He was the innocent one, but he took all of our sin, and it was transferred to him, and he paid the price that we deserve as our substitute. That is what all of this imagery was intended to teach, so that when, again, Jesus came, they would understand. Christian's application is that we must recognize, as they did, I'm guilty of sin. My sin demands death. But there is one who is innocent who took my place. His name is Jesus. And when I put my faith in Christ, what I'm doing is I'm identifying myself with Christ. And what he did on the cross was for me. His death was my, was my death. He took my punishment as my substitute. He shed his blood so that I would not have to for my sin. That's the sin offering. Then we come to the last one, the guilt offering. The purpose of the guilt offering was... Most believe it was a sin offering. It were the only difference 
is that it atoned for un, 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 uh, unwitting or, or unintentional sin requiring restitution. Um, that seems to be the nuance between these two is the distinctiveness is that it's the same thing. They did it the exact same way. Uh, the portion was, was burned on the altar. The rest was taken outside the camp, burned at that place, and the blood was poured out, all of that. But the only difference is that it was also a restitution was made. In chapter uh, 6, verses 1 through 7, kind of tell us about this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery or if he is extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely and if he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do and, in, and it shall be that when he sins and becomes guilty he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely and he shall make restitution for it in full. And add to it one-fifth more. And he shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. And he shall bring it to the priests and his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect, the flock according to the valuation of the guilt offering. So, uh, so there is restitution here. I did something that I took from somebody, I stole, I, I, whatever it is, and I need to give that back in full, plus 20% more, one-fifth more. And then later we read that not only was there then the offering that was made, the animal sacrifice, but then they gave a fifth to the priest. Because they not only stole from people, they stole from God. So, they had to give. So, so the offerer, once this, they had to make this offering, had to give back everything that they stole. They had to give 20% more to that person, had to give an offering of an animal sacrifice, then give 20% to the priest. Well, it was intended to help people realize, don't, don't do this stuff. It's going to cost you. When we slap people on the wrist for doing things that are unspeakable, when we give people a pass for doing unspeakable things, why wouldn't they keep doing it? We just don't have any concept of sin in our world today or the consequences of it. God did. God made it very clear. You're going to pay back. Not so that you can earn God's favor, <clears throat> but so you can recognize this is wrong. You need to understand there is a payment to be made. How did Christ fulfill this? Christ's sacrifice absolves us of our guilt. <clears throat> absolves us of our guilt and sets us free to live guilt-free lives. How many times? Maybe you thought this, maybe you've heard other people say, well, yeah, I can understand that Jesus forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. I know what I've done. I know who I've hurt. I know what I've done to offend, to harm, to take from, all those things. Christ's sacrifice absolves us of all guilt. Now, that's not to say that if there is an opportunity for us, we've taken from somebody, that we ought not to give it back. 
and make restitution where we can. There's some things we cannot make restitution for. The only thing we can do is apologize. It's to come before a person that we have hurt and offended and say, I am truly sorry. I understand. I, I, I offended you. I hurt you. And in that moment, I even, maybe even intended to do that because I was angry. I was hurt. I was whatever. But I just I have to tell you, I am sorry for what I've done. I take full ownership of it. I'm not going to try to make excuses. I, I can't do anything to make up for it. You know, I ruined your reputation. I, I smeared your name before. I, I, all, I, you know, all I can do is say I'm sorry, and I'll do my best to try and tell people that it's not you and all that. But we can't live. We're never intended to live the rest of our lives feeling uh, that oppression of guilt. Christ set us free. And so our application is that we accept the payment of Jesus on our behalf as we bring our confession to him and allow what he accomplished to not only cover our sin, but to remove the guilt and to set us free to live in the freedom that Christ has secured. when, as believers, we sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that God is just and, and faithful to forgive us our sins. He's just in that he paid it. It's taken care of. And he's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we live with this, well, I've got... I did all these bad things as a believer. Now I've just got to—I've got to pay. I've got to feel bad for a while, and I've got to mope around because I know how bad I, I am and what I did. We're not accepting the sacrifice of Christ. It's as if my acting like I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm you know like trying to pay for it is going to make up for it. I don't understand sin if I think I can make up for it. Christ paid with his life. I'm not going to make it up by being bummed out for a few days. I don't understand my sin. But then I rejoice in what Christ has done. And when we fully understand that, and we get up from our confession, and we begin to walk again, we can walk not only with with the burden off our shoulders, but with a gratitude in our heart that will motivate us not to do those same things over and over again. Because we're so thankful for what God has done through Christ. So the sacrificial system was intended to help Israel understand how bad sin is, how offensive it is to a holy God, that it requires And obedience was what God called them to in order to walk and live in good fellowship with God. That continual offerings were a continual helping them through that. And it helps us understand today that Christ, what Christ accomplished at the cross and the blood that he shed is absolutely essential to our redemption. Well, Father, we covered a lot of ground. And I'm, I'm grateful the opportunity to 
cover these things. There's so much more we could talk about through the book of Leviticus. Lord, I pray that for many of us may want to go back and read it through a little more closely and we have a little bit of an understanding of these things. But Lord, most importantly, that we would understand that blood had to be shed. And the blood of Christ fulfills these sacrifices. And we would live in light of that. And we would live with a grateful heart. Guilt-free lives because Christ has accomplished it for us. Thank you, Father. We receive what you've done for us only by faith, only by trusting Jesus, just as they had to trust in that blood to be sacrificed on their behalf. They brought it. We come to you trusting that Christ is enough. Thank you that that is the reality. Father, we ask that you would help us. Keep us, Lord. As David prayed in Psalm 19, keep your servants from presumptuous sin. Lord, we know that we're not perfect and we're going to mess up in ways we don't even know about. But keep us from intentional things that would break our fellowship with you. We might live a life that the nation was called to be representatives of God, wholly dedicated to what it is you called us to be and do. Thank you, Father, for it's in Jesus' name we pray.